0: It's Wednesday, May 17th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, now we consult the Department of Putting the Toothpaste back in the tube. A few days ago, the Washington Post had a banner story on the Discord leaks. These were the documents boosted by Airman, I call him Airboy, Jack Teixeira, in which he tried to gain cred with teenage gamers by sharing sensitive intel. Didn't work that well, but you know, worth the try. In fact, has been further exposed as, let us say an adherent of extremist ideologies, it would seem. But the documents themselves were first widely described as not much that would be revelatory to US, Ukraine, or world relations. Mm, Smart people already knew everything. But according to the Washington Post, their Discord leaks reporting, that's not true. Contrasting with the restraint that Vladimir Zelensky has shown publicly, the Post reports, quote, behind closed doors, Ukraine's leader has proposed going in a more audacious direction, occupying Russian villages to gain leverage over Moscow, bombing a pipeline that transfers Russian oil to Hungary, a NATO member, and privately pining for long-range missiles to hit targets inside Russia's borders. Wow, that would all represent quite the escalation. It would give nervous European and American legislators pause, and it would be seen as a clear provocation to the nuclear state of Russia. Zelensky acknowledged all that, according to an online video posted by the Washington Post. Volodymyr Zelensky called the disclosures damaging to both Washington and Kyiv. I was of two minds of these revelations. On the one hand, reporters are supposed to shed sunlight on the opaque communications of the powerful. On the other, I don't know. This really could thwart the Ukrainian defense efforts. I don't know how comfortable I would be publishing this with this emphasis on Zelensky's, well, maybe you could call it plans, or maybe you could just call it venting, spitballing, possibly posturing, but you know, there I go. Doing the work for Zelensky, it's not my job as a journalist to suppress information because it would be damaging even to a righteous cause. But all journalists all the time do take national security and international security into account. The Post Ukraine bureau chief, Isabel Kershuda, quotes Zelensky trying to downplay things. Both Washington and Kyiv have played down the importance and authenticity of the leaked documents.
1: So when we started asking Zelensky about some of the information in the leaked documents. Uh, He even took issue with us using the words, you know, that was sensitive information because he doesn't, he's not ready to acknowledge these documents as real or the information in them as legitimate.
0: And then an interesting thing happened. It seemed everyone besides the Washington Post kind of agrees with Zelensky. The New York Times has not covered these supposed revelations. A search for discord leaks yields nothing. Same with the Wall Street Journal, except for one story about gamers, same with Fox News. Unless other outlets have something cooking, it would seem that the other US big news organizations aren't rushing to match the Post reporting on illegally disclosed revelations, which could be quite damaging if widely spread. Good, I say, that's where I land, good. Except for one thing you may be thinking, Mike, what about you, the gist? You're squeezing the toothpaste out a little bit, aren't you, by talking about it? Well, I measured my reach against the Washington Post. and My findings were this, it's less, the gist has less of a reach. Plus, I now deputize you all you're authorized to keep confidential the Washington Post's reporting. Can you do that? They call it an exclusive. I henceforth will try to keep it that way. On the show today, many, many mayor's races, What they all mean, but first in the criminal justice system. Now, not gonna do the Dick Wolf voiceover. But in the criminal justice system, there is a fairly big chasm between what our gut tells us and what the actual numbers tell us, who to punish, how to punish, if to punish, what to punish. Our next guest, Jennifer Doliak, an economist at Texas A&M, is an expert in the evidence, what the evidence shows. And it's not just what it shows her and what her studies reveal, she oversees a panel of other criminal justice experts to get a read on what the consensus thinking is, where the disagreements are on the biggest issues of the day. She also hosts a very interesting podcast called Probable Causation. Jennifer Doliak up next. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Jennifer Doliak, Professor Jennifer Doliak, well, she is a professor at Texas A&M. Soon she will be the executive vice president for criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. And I listen to her podcast called Probable Causation. She is an expert in criminal law. She is an economist. She goes where the data takes her. Sometimes the data takes her to places that people object to, but she stands up for the data and her methodology. And now she's going to be using all that she's learned uh, in this enterprise called Arnold Ventures, which we'll find more about. I also want to hear about the criminal justice expert panel. This will be a wide ranging and challenging conversation, not challenging for me. Uh, I'm going to very much enjoy <laughs> it, but I'm going to put her through her paces. Hello, Professor Dolia.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: So we could start anywhere, but let's start with the criminal justice panel. I find this fascinating. It's about, I don't know how many, 40, 50 criminal justice experts, and you survey them. And what I take from it is the consensus of experts on the most important criminal justice issues. Is that the idea?
1: That's the idea. Yeah. So it's based on um, a somewhat popular panel of economists called the IGM Survey, uh, yeah. I think run by the University of Chicago.
0: University Chicago Booth School, I believe. Yes. And we always hear from them, oh, this is where the
1: economy is going. And they're always wrong. But yeah. that's okay. <laughs> 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 my panel is never wrong uh, just to be never clear wrong. yeah But they disagree with each other so yes. someone's got to be yes, wrong Yes yeah. that's right Um but the idea is you know there these are a lot of people who think very hard about the policy effects of various programs and interventions especially in the criminal justice space and um and they have a lot of expertise and my my co-director Anna Harvey and I were thinking you know how can we help to summarize all this expertise in a really easy to digest Way So we give them three statements relevant to some local or recent policy issues. So recently we did did one on marijuana reform based on uh, President Biden's three, conveniently, three proposals. So we had three statements about the three proposals um, and just said, like, do you agree or disagree that this is going to have meaningful benefits? And they can rate their response and then give some sort of comments. And the comments are always the most interesting part uh, to me.
0: Yeah. What is so? The three proposals were pardoning federal convictions for simple possession of marijuana will have meaningful social benefits. And I will tell my listeners that the median survey vote was that they agreed with that. Personally, I know the statistics on how many marijuana uh, convictions there are in the federal system, it seems extremely low. Very so tell me, yep. Yeah. Yes. So tell me about that. <laughs> I guess it's all depends on the definition of meaningful social benefits. Right.
1: No, totally. And, and if you read all the little, the comments that they left, they all basically said something along those lines. Like, so the, yeah. the question was especially about, you know, are there going to be meaningful social benefits that exceed any social costs? And so all these people basically said, well, there probably won't be any social costs. So right. if this helps like two or three people, then, like, sure, right. you know. yeah hurt um, so. more
0: good than bad. But then when you get to the next survey item, pardoning state convictions, this, mm-hmm. from what I know, most of the mar- almost all of the marijuana convictions are at a state level. Right. The experts still say they agree with pardoning state convictions will have meaningful social benefits. Mm-hmm. More benefits than costs is mm-hmm. what they're saying.
1: Right. And there's still a lot of uncertainty about how big those benefits are going to be. You know, I mean, I think one of the big motivations for this change is that it'll help people who have these convictions get employment, right? If they don't have these convictions on their record anymore. And that is, I think, very unclear still, um, you know, how much of a benefit that's going to have. Uh, there are all these record stealing and re- record expungement policies out there. I'm somewhat skeptical <laughs> of them. Yeah. Um, but but still, yeah, on average, this the the consensus of this panel was like, yeah, if I had to take a guess, I would say that this would have meaningful benefits. So
0: I want to talk about the policing questions, and mm-hmm. I will summarize for the audience what the consensus of the panel was. Uh, issue one, increasing police budgets will improve public safety. The median expert, the median criminal justice expert said, agree. Now, all the comments said, not all the comments, many of the comments said something like, well, it depends how you do it. Mm-hmm. But that, that alone is a, a, maybe a little surprising given where the discourse has been, right?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. I think, um, you know, there, there are a lot of questions in this space that we don't know the answer to. Uh, one of the few questions we really do know the answer to, we've got lots of really solid research at this point is that increasing police hiring, increasing police presence reduces crime. Um, there's just, you know, that is that is something that has as close to can be proven <laughs> in a social science setting has been proven. I think all of the open questions that we're debating as a society uh, are around, well, OK, but what are the costs? What are the social costs of increasing police presence? And are there ways to maintain the crime reduction benefits while reducing the social costs that come from over policing and harassment and stuff that police do that probably isn't very helpful? Right.
0: Now the next, the confidence of that, of the experts was uh, seven. The confidence on this next question is eight. So people agree with this even more, which is that increasing social service budgets like housing and health will improve public safety. But I want to contrast it with the last one. Increasing accountability for police misconduct will improve public safety, though as someone who's read a lot of the literature. But as a non-expert, I would say, well, yeah, of course accountability is going to improve public safety. But Though the median uh, survey said they agreed, they agreed with less confidence than the other two. And quite a number of people in the survey said, "You know, the the data is just not in." Can you yeah. tell me about why they would say that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the reality is we we can only evaluate the impact of interventions that we have actually tried. Uh, and so the reality is that in most places we don't have. Uh, many reforms or programs or policy changes that have increased police accountability in any sort of meaningful way. Um, So it's certainly something that I, as a researcher, would be in in favor of trying. My hunch is that it would have huge benefits. But um, until we actually see this done somewhere and are able to measure what the impacts are on the ground, people like me are going to say, well, we just we don't really know until we, we see it.
0: Right. I'm glad you say that and don't get ahead of the data. I want to talk about a couple of popular uh, means of accountability. Perhaps listeners will find some of this surprising. (laughs) Body cams. What's the data say?
1: Uh, yeah. So so this has actually been a really interesting policy space for a little while there. There was a very strong research evidence base that showed based on randomized control trials. Right. The gold standard. You randomly give cameras to some officers and not others. And and I summarize this evidence at some point in a piece basically said these cameras just are not affecting behavior. Right. So right, you compare right. the treatment and control groups. You don't see a difference in who police are arresting use of force complaints anything. Um, And that was across – they had so many RCTs. There were like a dozen RCTs across like the U.S. and U.K. Randomized control trial, the gold standard. Yeah. and then But then some more recent research has been coming out that is comparing cities that adopted body-worn cameras with cities that didn't. And they seem to be finding some really big benefits, which suggests that those randomized control trials might have been masking more community-wide effects. So if Mm -hmm. like some officers are wearing cameras but others aren't, Maybe it just changes the culture of the full department in a way that, that you know, made bias those estimates towards zero. So I think this, the literature has suddenly gotten to a place where it's like, well, maybe. <laughs> the jury's out yeah. a little bit. But and, it's certainly not us- going to be a, a silver bullet that just wearing a camera automatically changes your behavior. I think that's still true. I'd go with a golden shield in that
0: uh, analogy. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I remember when the first batch of surveys came out, no effect. And I said to myself, if I was the mayor of any town, I would still mm-hmm. invest in body cameras for a couple of reasons. Data changes. The uh, behavior of people changes over time. And it seemed logical to me that if there were body cams, but none of the other reforms were instituted, in other words, yeah. almost no cops were ever charged with crimes and we didn't have any reform on qualified immunity, mm-hmm. like if nothing else changed but we could see what the cops did and then they didn't get charged, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe body cams wouldn't change anything. Right. But, over time, if more cops are getting charged, uh, if also, if body cams are exonerating cops in mm-hmm. what could otherwise be ambiguous situations, which I have talked about on my show happens a lot, mm-hmm. I would expect to see changes and is that I mean, you just look at the data. I don't know how much you know why, but is that maybe what we're seeing? Is more body cams are used and more reforms uh, come on top of just the body cams?
1: It's possible. Yeah, I mean, the randomized controlled trials were a, a shorter-lived intervention, so it'd be a matter of months rather than a matter of years. Um, so it's possible that some of the other studies are look being able to look at longer-term effects, like you're saying. Um, and I completely agree that one reason one might think that just having these cameras didn't do anything is that cameras are don't provide accountability. You have to actually do something with the footage. Um, yeah. But I think the other reason that a lot of jurisdictions, when they, random, that when they did do these, these evaluations and found null effects, I know Washington, D.C. was an example. They put all this energy into running a randomized trial, found no effects, kept the cameras anyway. I yeah. think part of what's going on there is that changing police behavior wasn't the only goal that they had. The other piece was sort of a harder to measure impact of just transparency, um, and building trust with the community and knowing that like, if something does go wrong, they could get the footage in that one incident. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, even if it doesn't change behavior and doesn't reduce the likelihood that these events are happening, uh, it still gives people some peace of mind. I think that they could, They could hold someone accountable in a really extreme event. Um, Now, then we don't need the randomized trial for it. (laughs) So there becomes a question of like, why are we doing this research if that's really what you want? But I think that's the other thing going on here.
0: Yeah. And also, as I look at the survey question, increasing accountability for police misconduct will improve public safety. That's not necessarily the same as lead to more convictions of police for abuse, is it?
1: Right. I mean, I think I think a lot of people, including me, think that that would be one mechanism for improving public safety. Um, uh, And so but it becomes sort of a a multi-step process and sort of I think the big the big thing in my mind is how do we improve trust between police and the community? Um, And this is going to be one way that the community might trust the police more and then cooperate with them more. Right. The police Mm -hmm. can't help, can't do their jobs effectively if uh, if witnesses won't talk to them, if people won't report crime to the cops. And so so if that's what's going on, then we will actually achieve a, an increase in public safety if the police and community are like actually start talking to each other more.
0: Yeah, so Let's talk about that. Clearance rates are um, a very important indicator of police effectiveness, but also do they have a little bit of a snowball effect when cops start showing the community that talking to cops has an effect when those clearance rates get above 50 percent, above 60 percent. I think for New York City on murder, they're really high, though, in some places like Baltimore, they're in 30 percent. But my question is, does it have sort of the add on effect of uh, giving? police reform and crime reduction momentum?
1: I would think so. You know, we don't actually have great studies on clearance rates in particular. We know a lot about, so just like increasing the probability that you get caught for a crime, which is sort of the same thing <laughs> as a clearance rate. Uh, I think it's the spirit of a clearance rate. Um, uh, that has a huge deterrent effect on crime. So so there's been a lot of research showing that we get a lot more bang for our, our buck in terms of prevent actual crime prevention if we focus our energy and resources on increasing the probability that people get caught for offenses. So yeah, if you're actually identified as a suspect and and uh, are held accountable, versus increasing the punishment, which has been traditionally our approach. So locking people up in prison for a really long time. So clearance rates are definitely a place where it's you know good to invest a lot of resources for a lot of reasons. And then the next question becomes: How do we increase clearance rates? Aside from putting cameras everywhere, like surveillance cameras and DNA databases, which I've studied, uh, just like what do we do in police investigations becomes a lot harder. But having witnesses talk to you is certainly, uh, certainly helpful. Yeah,
0: because there's a classic trope of criminal justice that you want to define criminal justice and you want to define punishment as being swift, certain, and fair. Mm-hmm. And if you get all of those things, you'll have a pretty good criminal justice regime. But what is the? Those are that's a great motto and catchphrase. Does the data show that that is all really important?
1: Uh, I think the short answer is yes. Um, I don't know that we have, you know, uh, good tests on the like the fair part, but it, it seems mm-hmm. intuitive. <laughs> People like, uh, you know, uh, have faith that that justice is being meted out fairly uh, based on, you know, uh, everybody's getting the same accountability and, and it doesn't seem arbitrary who's being punished and who isn't. Um, there, So some of the best uh, examples of this are Programs like twenty four seven sobriety, which is um, which uh, basically um, puts people on who are on probation or parole, they who have, whose offenses are related to alcohol or drug use, um, it basically uh, tells them you can't you can't use alcohol while you're you're under supervision and you have to come in every day and do a breathalyzer and if we are caught drinking then you are immediately um, put in jail for one night. Right, you're really short punishment, but high certainty of punishment. If you get caught, you're going to you're going to um, have this punishment, um, and basically, it's it's just incredibly effective at reducing not only positive alcohol tests, um, people stop drinking, but also reduces DUIs, reduces domestic violence, reduces alcohol-related mortality. Like it actually does stop people from from drinking and and, uh, engaging in in risky behaviors related to alcohol. So so that is one type of intervention based on this swift, certain, fair idea in the criminal justice system, Um, figuring out how to implement the swift and certain punishment in other kinds of settings where you can't just do a drug or alcohol test, um, is a little trickier. But is the idea behind putting surveillance cameras around, having DNA databases, all the new technologies? I think are really helpful. Uh, basically, everything that has some sort of surveillance component <laughs> helps with this, and then becomes you know controversial on other other sides.
0: I know, and if that might seem dystopian to some of my listeners, how I apply swift, certain, and fair, what I think of is New York City's traditional gun laws. If you have a gun in New York, you're busted and you're facing jail time. Now, there are some diversion programs, but... Cops are really looking to get guns off the street by arresting everyone who has a gun. And most of the criminals or would-be criminals in New York absolutely know that. It's different from in many other cities. And so, and there's, it, this is not uncontroversial. You know, people I respect think that New York has been too tough when it comes to their gun laws. And let's also add into this that recent Supreme Court decisions make it questionable if New York will be able to be as swift and certain with its gun laws. But, you know, I don't know if you've researched this or you've researched, you know, such a local um, um, policy, but I would say that's one area where swift, certain, and we could debate fair, as you said, (laughs) really shows up and really has an effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it seems very plausible to me. I mean, I think the the challenge there is because the most will
0: ever get from an economist <laughs> who hasn't done the research. Yet. It could
1: be right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think the challenge there is the one way that you you increase the detection of guns is through policies like stop and frisk, which yes. then people worry are applied differentially to different people. But but I agree. I mean, if if you if your top priority is getting guns off the streets, then you know making sure. Every time someone is carrying a gun, they are very likely to get caught with it and be held accountable for it. That should reduce. Uh, basically, all the evidence we have suggests that would dramatically reduce the rate at which people carry guns.
0: Have you looked at studies on stop and frisk or non-predicated interdictions, if you want to
1: call it that? <laughs> there, I haven't. Lo- I haven't researched the topics myself, but there are a bunch of studies on this, um, and yeah, I think the results are somewhat varied. I mean, some, some of them do find, uh, that they do reduce crime, um, in the places that it's being applied. And then the question becomes like, is it worth the social costs, um, Mm -hmm. that people seem to, uh, seem to suffer, uh, from that kind of intervention? And there, there, my sense is the, the evidence is basically, basically says probably not, um, uh, given the impact on, Again, the the relationship between police and the community, it seems to damage that relationship. And that relationship is really important for other things. And so maybe this isn't the best use of police right. time.
0: Can you do it without the racial disparities?
1: Presumably. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge becomes, you know, you'd have to, in order to reduce the racial disparities, you'd have to basically do it in like all neighborhoods. But just
0: tell me what you think of this idea I've been having, which is that when crime and murder was low um not uh, you know compared to western europe but much lower than it had been before and much lower than it is now and when new york city had a homicide rate of you know 3.0 which was less than an average city in america or an average place in america we allowed ourselves to be to have some leeway we allowed ourselves the luxury of focusing on the costs more than the benefits because we were just enjoying the benefits, Mm -hmm. if you will, the benefits of low crime. Now that crime is up, the cost-benefit calculation appears different. So, you know, this is just the thought I've had, the luxury of railing against the carceral system when crime was low. I don't know if there's any data or if you have any thoughts on that.
1: This is something that folks who who, uh, are working on criminal justice reform are very worried about <laughs> that. Uh, and it's not it's not necessarily that, you know, we we're more interested in, in thinking about the costs when when we are not afraid about our own personal safety. It's that that fear sort of blinds us in a way. I think I think still the smart on crime approach is not to put people in prison for 50 years, right? That is right. it's not right. cost effective, it does not improve public safety in any meaningful way. Yeah, um,
0: length of sentence you've done the research on that. Length of sentence is really a bad predictor of effectiveness of criminal justice, right? Yeah,
1: it just turns out like most people who are engaged in crime are young. And so mm-hmm. I mean just from the pure fact that people age out of crime quickly means that locking people up for a long period of time is not preventing any crime by that person. And we also know that in general, the type of person who's you know, on the margin of committing crime is not thinking that far ahead. They're thinking to maybe tomorrow or next week, they're not thinking 10 years from now and how that long sentence could affect them. So the threat of a long punishment just has no deterrent effect on most people. Right. So, and a
0: fifty-year-old yeah. and a fifty-year-old in jail. Sure, maybe that fifty-year-old had a gun when he was twenty-nine, but by the time he's fifty, he's going to right. as the phrase phrases age
1: out of credit. right. The vast majority yeah. of the time, he is not a public threat anymore, and so it's just a waste of our money <laughs> to be keeping him in jail and or prison. And this so this comes up a lot in the the conversations now about pretrial detention. Right, this is the hot political topic right now. Should we be locking people up while they're awaiting trial? And you get into the same sorts of conversations. It's just it's just not. So, you know, some of those people you're going to commit, you're going to, you're going to, you know, help by taking them off the street. But the vast majority, especially if you think about their risk level, if you, you know, let low risk people who are charged with a low level offense out of jail, the vast majority are not going to commit any crime. We can like look at the data and be smart about this. And yet, when people are afraid about their own personal safety, they're like, I don't care about the data. If there's any chance that anyone could, you know, harm my kid, lock them all up. And so that, that is the conversation. I think a lot of us are trying to push in the right direction (laughs) or in a better, smarter direction, um, and hope that we can learn from how we reacted to the rising crime rates in the early nineties, uh, with a much tougher on crime approach. We've learned a lot in the last 20, 30 years about how to do this better. And my hope is that we can do it. We can react better this time.
0: And Professor Doliak will be back tomorrow to talk about her new job, which was, by the way, protested by a few other academics in a slightly different field, a few journalists, who objected to one particular study of hers from years ago that was not inaccurate, but to them, inconvenient. Tune into The Gist with Jennifer Doliak tomorrow. And now the spiel. There were a slew of mayoral races last night and one Kentucky gubernatorial primary. Not going to talk about the gubernatorial primary except to say I really like saying gubernatorial. The Latin b gubernare, one who governs. It gets transformed to the V in governor but back to the B in gubernatorial. Doesn't happen with other Latinate words though there is a thing called betacism. V's becoming bees. don't worry, you needn't refer to your lover as your lubinatorial, though it is hot. Also hot, Donna Deegan defeats Daniel Davis despite DeSantis' dalliance and dramatic decision in Duvall. Huh? What? Okay, that is exactly what Republicans were saying, huh? What? When their candidate, Daniel Davis, lost to the Democrat, Donna Deegan. The first time a woman has become mayor of... Jacksonville, Florida, that's the city in Duval County, and the first time a Democrat's won in a dozen years. Both candidates were moderate and business-oriented, plus DeSantis did endorse Davis It was a tepid endorsement, or as DeSantis thought of it, a red-hot endorsement. I'm not sure if there are any national lessons to be taken away from this race. Though I will say, with 113,000 votes in a city of 1 million people, Donna Deegan will be governing with the explicit endorsement of a little over 10% of the people. And that's the threshold I look for. It's really low. It's kind of pathetically low. But there are so many places where the person in charge was never even okayed by 10% of the people he or she will be governing. Now, to be fair, 20% of the population is under 18. It's higher in some cities. A large portion of the population in many cities can't vote because they're not citizens. But still, look at Pittsburgh. This results from a couple years ago, but Pittsburgh's a city of 300,000. The only vote that matters is the Democratic primary, and Ed Gainey pulled a big upset. He had 26,000 votes. That's kinda sad. Whereas in Philadelphia, a city of 1.5 million people and this vote was yesterday, well, it was a split field and only the Democratic primary, which is the only vote that matters, but Sherelle Parker got almost 70,000 votes. That is less than 5% of the total votes. Like I said, split field, though the total number of people voting, 210,000, that was kinda low. In Colorado Springs, bigger city than you think, 500,000 people. Yemi Mobilade built on his 32,000 votes in the primary to end up with a winning 67,000 votes. Okay, it's above 10%. Mobilade, full name blessing Yemi Mobilade, is the city's first black mayor, will become the city's first black mayor. He's a political independent. Colorado Springs is an important nexus in the world of evangelical Christianity. It's been a conservative stronghold for almost 50 years. So that's significant. It is a fool's errand to look at different results in different races with different candidates and try to articulate a theme. But I shall be that fool. Because one is presenting itself. Americans, even in conservative places, are willing to back non-conservatives, maybe even explicit Democrats. Americans just want good leadership and non-hardline anti-abortion positions. Except in the places they do. But mostly not in cities. But even in liberal cities, the citizenry is growing despondent about crime and disorder. But wait, you say, look at Chicago. They're the very progressive Brandon Johnson beat the law and order candidate. Yes, but the law and order candidate was a 69 year old white guy who is personally anti-abortion. I know he voted for abortion rights, but Overall, Paul Vallis could have been and was painted as maybe too mug a Republican for a city like Chicago. Other than Chicago, look at all the other races. Parker, In Philadelphia, she's a black woman. She defeated Helen Jim. Jim was vociferously backed by Bernie Sanders. Look at New York, where Eric Adams, a black man, beat the far more progressive Maya Wiley, a black woman. Look at Karen Bass, black woman in LA, narrowing the field against more progressive challengers. So I would say, unless the candidate in a majority-minority city is a seemingly out-of-touch white guy, a moderate or someone who takes crime as a more serious topic than decarceration, that candidate has a good shot. This is New York where I'm speaking to you from, a liberal city, a progressive city. There is a plan by our self-identified but not confirmed progressive mayor, Eric Adams, to deal with the migrants being bussed up from Texas. They need to be housed somewhere, so he's putting them in gyms in city schools. Local station WCBS interviewed Mona Davids, an activist who founded the New York City School Safety Coalition.
1: We are talking about unvetted foreign nationals, migrants coming from all over the world. We don't know anything about them. We don't know their background. We don't know what they're capable of. This is not acceptable.
0: Davids is a black woman who was born in South Africa. But she echoes a lot of the same concerns you might hear from a Republican in a Southern state, right? The sentiments that a liberal might call xenophobic if it came with a drawl or between puffs of a Marlboro, especially an unfiltered one. But why does Mona Davids, a longtime school activist I wouldn't categorize as a gadfly, why does she hold these views? I would say it's because they're understandable human concerns wcbs augmented david's comments with vox pop from a smattering of local parents i'm
1: not sending my kids to school because at the end of the day there could be pedophiles coming in they could be people trying to kidnap our kids they could have weapons they could have drugs they could have anything i don't agree i don't agree with them coming into school
0: that doesn't work for me not with the kids at least no that doesn't work for me at all everybody needs a chance in life you know Everybody's going through something. I'm Ukrainian myself and I support refugees. I just hope they take the proper measures with security. I'm not here to tell you that's perfectly representative, but it is how residents, even normally or nominally progressive residents of a nominally progressive city, it's how they deal with issues of the unknown and perceived dangers thrust upon them. Residents of big cities are not wildly different from the median American. They do not like danger, they do not like being unsafe, they do not rhetorically downgrade their fear to discomfort. They do not confuse valuing safety for a concept called privilege. And the candidates they elect reflect that. Because we all want essentially the same things. And the candidates who communicate that they understand what actual voters want most often wins. They don't always win re-election because by that time the electorate has some data to see if the results match the rhetoric. that's it for today's show Corey war is the producer of the gist and joel patterson's the senior producer michelle pesca is in charge of lobster husbandry for peach fish productions the gist is presented in collaboration with lipson's AdvertiseCast. cast for advertising inquiries go to advertisecast.com slash the gist boom peru g peru do peru and thanks for listening